We had four Grammy nominations for the Living Years. Best video, best vocal, best song, best this, that, and the other. You know, we performed live and it was pretty scary. The front row was all these incredible people, you know, Michael McDonald, Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Stevie Wonder, I think, was there. But then um, Bette Midler was also up for best song. And she came on and she did that song, The Wind Beneath My Wings, tore the place apart. And I thought, please don't give us the award, for God's sake, and never get out of here alive, you know. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate twice-weekly classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now, apologies first up for the slight delay in getting this episode out. I've taken a a well-earned break with my family, and I thought I had this scheduled for release, but clearly not, so apologies, it's a day or so late. I had a break as well from the social media side of things as well. It was nice to unplug for a week and spend some proper time with family, you know, swimming in lakes. We actually went and swam in Loch Ness. Didn't see the Loch Ness monster on this occasion, maybe next time, and lots of other fun things too. So apologies for the lack of vintage rock pod action in this last few days. But that out of the way, I've got a fascinating chat for you with an incredible musician and singer on today's show. He's literally played and recorded and sang with some huge bands, as well as obviously on his own right too. He scored some huge hits on both sides of the Atlantic with Grammy nominations and everything else as well. I'm talking about... Paul Carrack, the main man behind Ace's 1974 hit, How Long, vocalist on Squeeze's hit, Tempted, co-singer in Mike and the Mechanics, he's also toured with Eric Clapton for a decade or more, played Roger Waters' famous The Wall Show in Berlin, been part of Ringo Starr's all-star band, he's written songs for the Eagles, as well as being part of Roxy Music for three albums, and so, so much more. He's a talented down-to-earth fella, really humble as well, and it was a pleasure to chat to him. So here you go, here's my interview with the wonderfully talented Paul Carrick. I'm delighted to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod the man with the golden voice, a man who sang on so many big hits for so many different groups. It's a pleasure to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod Mr. Paul Carrick. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I saw that little smile when I said the man with the golden voice. I mean, you are labelled as that, that follows you around everywhere, doesn't it? Well, it was... um... Some bright spark at the BBC. Um, we we made a, 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 a little documentary life story type thing and uh, they needed something to hang it on. And I said, well, how long has this been going on? How about that? And they said, no, not really. So it's, uh, anyway, yeah, I always cringe a bit because see, obviously I wouldn't say that myself. And um, it's not always golden on a Monday morning, you know. So, uh, but anyway... No, it sounds good to me. It sounds good to me. You're a proud Yorkshireman. You were born, you were raised in Sheffield. Um, Joe Cocker lived just a couple of streets away from you when you were young. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was about, um, well, I don't know, maybe three or four streets away, but uh, he was in the same sort of vicinity. Right. Yeah, we, I would often see him because uh, I, I grew up living in, um, my folks had a, sh- a shop on uh, on the main road there and we lived at the back of the shop. And I would often see him walking to his girlfriend who lived the other side, singing away to himself. I was a bit scared of this scary guy, but (laughs) got to um, see him many times. Uh, You know, as I got a bit older and I was old enough to go into pubs, uh, you could see Joe, you know, several times uh, a week, probably. And uh, it, it was fantastic. It was great. Incredible to have two such incredible 
singers and musicians and everything like that from such a small area which is great mm. yes um, and talking about that time that era of, of growing up and seeing people in pubs and things like that now you're at the perfect age for the boom of the beatles mania and mersey beat and everything like that did you get to see them when when you were younger yeah i did i saw them a couple of times i saw beatles uh, a couple of times and uh, all the package shows basically went through sheffield you know sheffield city hall and uh, yeah i know i was well uh, smitten by the by the whole thing yeah i mean i was already kind of uh, uh, fooling around on drums where up in the attic there was a couple of bits and bobs my dad had dabbled at some point i think and um before the beetle boom it was the instrumental uh guitar bands like the ventures and the shadows of course i love the shadows but so, so i would have been i think i was about 11 12 yeah no but i was totally smitten by the whole thing incredible stuff now um you kind of followed the, the the what is now the beetle path as well didn't you you're in a band at 17 and you went over to germany and you did the whole hamburg thing as well and i remember speaking to pick withers before he said before he was in dire straits he did the same sort of thing and they went over and they did kind of 45 minutes you had a 15 minute break then you were back on and you did that for six or seven hours a night and you did that as well didn't you at 17 yeah it was a little bit after the beatles and all that lot they all been through but it was very, you know, it was exciting, really exciting to be uh, out there. I mean, we couldn't play much, but we we learnt on the job, <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I think we uh, we did like a month residency at the Top Ten Club, which was right on the Reaper Barn there in Hamburg. Okay, and uh, we would alternate. There were two bands on, and uh, you know, you did a fifty-minute set, as a ten-minute break. The other guys played, and then it just went on like that. For from about seven in the evening till two in the morning. I don't think I ever saw, I never saw uh, darkness actually. <laughs> what am I saying? Yeah, I never saw darkness. It was, it was summer and we, it would be daylight when we went in there and we daylight when we come out more or less. <laughs> so uh, great fun. I think most people that went to the Reaper Barn would, would say the same thing too. You don't really get to see the darkness, do you? Mm. Um, but in terms of that band you were playing with, it kind of evolved and you became Ace. And um, in that band, you had your, your first taste of real success and the massive hit How Long came from that band, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a few years there in between, mm -hmm. but uh, about five years you're talking about there, I would suggest if I was 17. We were a cover band, obviously. That's what that's what all everybody did, basically. You played covers, but we teamed up with the other band that were playing. There's another band from Liverpool, and they were really good, actually. They were much better than we were, and they had a couple of multi-instrumentalists that played saxes and flutes and that and we used to listen a lot to music ah. um back in the in the digs you know and um we actually teamed up with these guys and became like a prog rock band who shall remain nameless and firmly in the closet but uh that prog rock band kind of um evolved into ace when that fizzled out i think we had all our equipment nicked and uh, the band gradually fizzled out and uh, out of the ashes of that we formed ace yeah which was just put together to play in the pubs around london basically so how did uh, how long come about then if you were doing kind of covers and you obviously decided to start writing your, your own material and then the big hit single how long came about how where did that idea come from for the song we were a cover band we evolved into this uh, prog rock pretentious nonsense sort of band and then we went back to basics and started even with ace we did uh covers as well we did you know rock and roll soul 
Uh, but we did write our own stuff and I started to write songs, you know, and um, one of the first ones I wrote was How Long. It was great because um, I kind of thought, I mean, I'm self-taught, completely self-taught. So every all the time you're learning and making accidents and think, oh, that sounds good. But uh, I thought I invented those chords, you know, at the beginning, of course, they bog standard, really. But uh, amazingly, it's um, endured. The songs endured and still play it all the time. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So well over 20 million streams on Spotify alone as well. Is it now, really? My yeah, God. Absolutely. There you go. Um, and was that one, that was part of the album that was recorded at Rockfield Studios, which is now very, very famous. But at the, at the time, I, met, I think I saw an interview once saying that it was just kind of this rundown place that we went and did it in Wales. It was a farm. And the two mad brothers, or one was slightly more madder than the other, the Kingsley and uh, Charles. Yeah, they were kind of uh, playing in bands and stuff. And they started to convert this, literally a cow shed into a studio. <laughs> and uh, there, were a few, there were a few people, locals kind of, uh, Dave Edmonds, you know, for example, you know, were yeah. recording there. And uh, but even, even when we got there, it was, it was a 16 track recording studio and they, it was falling to bits really. It was held together by bits of string. But we had the time of our lives. I've got to say, we went down, we had, we booked it for two weeks to do our album. Yep. We played football all day and and then got wasted and played in uh, played music at night. It was just heaven, really. <laughs> but we'd had nothing in. The, we had this thing for two weeks, but we we were all very inexperienced as far as recording went. And I think after about ten days, we nothing worth, you know, while it was in the can sort of thing. But then the. The guy uh, producing, John Anthony, he, he more or less started to crack the whip. He was great fun, John. He was, uh, but he said, look, we better get our heads down now and, <laughs> and get something down. So <laughs> we, then we, 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 wrote, we did the album there. Incredible. And you talk about time of your lives, you mentioned that there. I mean, the 70s in, the, in, in Britain wasn't a, a wonderful place to be at times, but uh, you went over to America, didn't you? And you did a tour with a um, supporting Yes. I mean, how was that for you going over to the big states and, and performing in front of huge crowds? Mind-blowing, <laughs> really, but uh, incredible. As you say, you know, it, it was pretty austere, in the UK, I mean, power cuts and three-day weeks, and and then you know we we flew to the states, and it was all the land of milk and honey, you know, and um, yeah, it was incredible. Actually, it, it was it was a bit daunting. I mean, the fact was the hit the 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 song was a massive hit there. It was a yeah. like a radio hit. You couldn't get away from it. We would like rent a car at the airport and. Uh, put the radio on and it'd be us it was like we got sick of it in the end but yeah I mean it was a bit much because we supported yes and they were a very established band on that circuit we would we did three months of pretty much every night playing in a arena which is 20,000 <laughs> seats you know some of some of them were bigger outdoor festivals so and we were this dodgy old um 
pub band, you know, in, in a scruffy, in our T-shirt, no presentation whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, we got away with it but by the skin of our teeth, basically. <laughs> some experience, though, absolutely some experience. Yeah. Um, speaking of some experiences, you then, um, well, I'm skipping a few years, obviously, but you've got such an incredible back catalogue and the amount of people you've worked with. The next thing I want to speak about is um, replacing Jules Holland in Squeeze. I mean, mm. recruited by Glenn Tilbrook and the classics. And I mean, how did that one come about? Um, well, long story is um, we sort of uh, ace ace fizzled out. We had that one massive hit. It was a slow descent back to obscurity. We came. We'd been living in the US. We came back to uh, the UK, and uh, it was like everything had changed completely. You know, it was all punk, yeah. the new wave, and all this, that, and the other. And uh, I, I thought, well, that's it. You know, that's me done kind of thing. I'm still there with me long hair and me beard. And um, but I knew various people who from before we'd left. I mean, for instance, Pete Thomas, the drummer in Elvis Costello and his tractions was a big friends. And uh, I knew, of course, Nick Lowe and people yeah. uh, all Dave Robinson, all these guys that, you know, formed uh, Stiff Records, Jake Riviera. Of course, the founder of Stiff Records, but I knew I knew Jake when he was a roadie for uh, Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. You know. So Jake had taken on Squeeze. He'd become they split with uh, Miles Copeland, their manager, and Jules had gone with Miles, and uh, Squeeze had um, came under the wing of uh, Jake Riviera. They needed a keyboard player. They were trying all kinds of people. They tried a lot of people. And in the end, I think Jake said, well, what about Paul Carrick? I mean, he's he's been back in town. He's been playing with Roxy Music. So I went down to their rehearsal place. I didn't know much about them. I knew their singles, and I, I, I thought they were fantastic. Uh, I didn't know they had such a kind of staunch following in the, particularly on the East Coast of America. They, they were right in there. Um, so I went down and... Played, you know, just sat in there. They gave me a bit of paper with a few chords on it and then rattled through all these songs one after another. High tempo, loads of chord changes. I was like, oh. But I thought I thought they were fantastic. And um, I think they were running out of options. And they sort of said, well, we're starting recording next week. Do you want to do it? And I, I said, yeah. I didn't, I didn't think I was joining the band, actually, at that point. I thought I was just, you know, probably going to do the album. But um, anyway... That's that's how it came about. Absolutely, and from that came um, one of their big songs as well. Became an anthem for the band Tempted. I mean, you sang the lead vocals on that as well. I mean, how did that come about then? Because obviously you're not one of the, the main members at that point, and then they ask you to, to to sing the lead vocals on a track, which becomes huge for them. Yeah, it's a bit tricky, but uh, <clears throat> it was Elvis Costello's idea. He was uh, okay. he was re- producing the album, and uh, they'd actually already recorded a version of Tempted which was very different. Mm-hmm. I think Dave Edmonds had produced that. Um, but one day we were just messing about, playing through the song in a, in that style, you know, this more solely kind of thing. And um, it was Elvis Costello's brilliant suggestion that I should sing some lead vocals on it. I mean, uh, of course, Glenn sings a bit, Elvis sings a bit, but um, I was delighted and... Um, but of course, it made it a little bit awkward when it was released as a single, and it was get, and it got a, quite a bit of action in America because Squeeze had been knocking on the door for a while, and they had a, a good 
kind of cult following. It's a bit more than a cult following. And then the new guy sings this, the kind of breakthrough <laughs> hit. It was a little bit weird, obviously, but uh, no, <laughs> we just cope with it. We got, got on with it. Good stuff. And again, skipping a few years forward, the next big band to talk about, obviously, is Mike and the Mechanics. It was a, a side project originally by Mike Rutherford, everyone knows from Genesis. I mean, another question, how did you get involved with that one? <laughs> I had, by this time, left Squeeze. I, was in, uh, I had a band together with Nick Lowe, and uh, that's a whole, another long story I won't go into, but, um, you know, we were playing all, <laughs> all over the place. I got a call from a guy called B.A. Robertson, yep, Scottish, yep. who I didn't really, I didn't really know. But um, he was, he's a songwriter. He'd, he'd written this song that he wanted to pitch into a movie. And... Um, he'd had a discussions and he said, you know what? We should get that guy who sang how long to sing this for us. <laughs> Cheeky devil. <laughs> and, um, he just rang me up and said, would you fancy doing it? Would you? And I said, yeah, okay. It, it, I lived in, in London at the time and in this, their studio was just around the corner. So I went and sang this, uh, demo for them. And, um, he said, Oh, by the way, I'm writing songs with Mike Rutherford from Genesis, he's doing a solo project. Would you be interested coming down and, you know, trying out singing a few songs? And I said, yeah, sure. So I finished up going down there with him and um, they had recorded a load of tracks, you know, backing tracks without real lead vocals. And uh, they had this one track that was like three chords going on for about seven minutes. And they said, just go in there and blues away, you know, just blues away. We've got this, bit you know can you hear me can you hear me man okay and then just you know do anything so i did and they liked the sound of it and ba went off and wrote this weird lyric to it and um that became um eventually that was silent running or can you hear me and uh, that was the first release for Mike and the Mechanics. Absolutely. And then you sang on that and you sang on other big songs as well, didn't you? I mean, The Living Years, which went to number one in, in America. I mean, that must have been incredible. Yeah. It, it's always a bit surreal when it's happening over there. I mean, like yeah. going back to how long, we were just buying uh, Billboard magazine every week, with, which had the, you know, the main chart. And it, it, was, it just went up. In, you know, very slowly over months. It doesn't happen like that now. You know, with all these campaigns where it just comes in at its highest point and then drops out. But this, it just worked its way up the top 200, almost to the top. But um, Living Years, yeah, that a, a, num a number one. And, uh, and the video, of course, we were, by this time, videos were kicking off. So, uh, yeah. We had four Grammy nominations for the Living Years. It was like best video, best vocal, best song, best this, that, and the other. Um, you know, we we performed live, and it was pretty scary. The front row was all these incredible people, you know, Michael McDonald, Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Stevie Wonder, I think, was there. Yeah, so it was pretty, pretty scary. But then um, Bette Midler was also up for best song, and she came on, and the crowd went nuts. And she did that song, The Wind Beneath My Wings, tore the place apart. And I thought, please don't give us the award for 
God's sake, and never get out of here alive, you know. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> incredible um yeah and then the other huge hits as well like looking back over my shoulder i mean i spoke to klaus mine from the scorpions and he said that the american record company tried to take the whistle off wind of change was there any talks or anything like that for over my shoulder well i was amazed they left it on because uh yeah i when i did the vocal there was this section which i assumed would be a guitar solo and i just yeah. filled in with it you know <laughs> Uh, being a compulsive whistler, which I am, um, I just did that and they left it in. I was amazed, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible stuff. Give, you, you started there. Give us a little blast of the whistle. Go on. <laughs> there you go. My dad was there a painter and decorator, so it's, it's his fault, really. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Now, did you enjoy your time in Mike and Mechanics? What was it like working with Mike Rutherford? Yeah, it was great, actually. Um it was a kind of put together band. Obviously Mike had the infrastructure. He had the basic rhythm section of the guys who'd done the tracks, Pete Van Hook mm -hmm. on drums, who's become probably my best mate over these years. Uh, Adrian Lee was the keyboard player and there were various singers, but um, Chris Neal, the producer, he was a very much a pop producer because Mike had done solo albums before, but they were a bit sort of rambling, whereas Chris is totally pop, you know, and uh, he did a, a lot to shape that. Chris also brought in a great guy called Paul Young yep. uh, from Manchester. He, he'd been in a band called Sad Cafe, and Paul was a fantastic uh, singer and frontman. Sadly, no longer with us, but... Um, we were all experienced guys who were used to being in bands. And even though it was put together, mm -hmm. we all wanted it to succeed and, 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 and do well. And um, Mike was able, you know, because of his thing with Genesis, he, he was able to put the infrastructure together for us to become a touring band. And, uh, you know, the band it was successful with the loads of airplay and everything. And, and it was good fun to be on the road and, and then we'd all disperse and Mike would go back to Genesis and we'd all carry on with our bits and pieces. And uh, so it, it was good. good fun. It worked well. worked well. You mentioned your own bits and pieces. I mean, you've done a lot of solo work. We'll get to that shortly. But uh, some of the other little stories I'd like to hear about. I mean, you've worked with some incredible artists. You've done keyboards on the Smiths' debut album. You've worked with Roxy Music, as you said a little bit earlier. Three albums with them, Avalon, Flesh and Blood and Manifesto. You're part of Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. I mean, that must have been an absolutely incredible experience as well, to tour and play with him. I mean, who was on the lineup of the of the, the All-Star Band uh, when you were on it? Yeah, because it's... Um, it, it, it changes, yes. It, yeah. He has a different lineup pretty much every year, I, I think. Um, the lineup was Colin Hay okay, yeah. from Men at Men Work. Work yeah who was great and his songs went down a storms as well in the stadiums. Um, John uh, Waite, oh, yeah. who uh, was from the babies. He'd had a couple of solo hits as well. Uh, yep. I ain't missing you. Sheila E of course was one of the two drummers, Sheila E from the Prince and all that, all that sort of stuff. Mark Rivera was the kind of MD. He sax player mm. plays foreigner and Billy Joel and, Tons of people. Have I missed anybody out? I think that was it. Yeah, I think that's it. Always looks like such fun. But watching, it was great. Watching the bands play and everything. Well, yeah. basically the criteria for being in the band is you you need three hits because everybody takes it in turns. 
Colin does one, and John does one, and I do one, and Ringo does one. And um, I, I found it a little bit surreal, actually, being on the stage with Ringo. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, he did do a little help from my friends, Yellow Submarine, Boys, and um, a couple of his solo things. And it was pretty surreal, but it was nice nice to do absolutely and then to some other names you've worked with like to the pretenders and you mentioned nick lowe and bb king and elton john and you toured for years with eric clapton and just one other person to ask about i mean roger waters band now you played on the famous the wall concert in berlin in front of what was it a quarter of a million people maybe more three hundred thousand four hundred thousand whatever it was that turned up in the end yeah it goes up every year actually it goes up every year that's five hundred thousand people there i think it's up to now it was a lot of people I know that. It was an incredible lineup uh, on the day as well. I mean, what was that like, um, that, that show alone? Um, it was scary. Uh, like I say, a lot of people and it was everything timed to the second, you know, it synchronized the helicopters and cranes. And I, I came in very late into it, actually, because uh, I was kind of a sub, okay. I think, because um, I think there were a couple of people um who got a bit wobbly when it got towards showtime and, and, and Roger uh, called me up and asked me, he, he gave me like six tracks to, he said, have a listen to these and get to know them. And I might need you. <laughs> and literally a few days is the week before um, he called me up and said, I need you to come and do. Um, hey, you wow. learn that one. So uh, that's what I did. Incredible experience. And then just another band to touch on. I mean, this is it's ridiculous, the, the amount of names that I'm just reeling off here. But your association with the Eagles, I mean, Hell Freeze is over in 94. The band did get back together. And one of the songs that you co-wrote appeared on that album, didn't it? That's right. Love Will Keep Us Alive. Yeah. Co-written with Peter Vale and the late Jim Capaldi. And uh, I had met Timothy B. Schmidt who, for those who don't know, he's the guy with the beautiful high voice. Uh, I knew, met Timothy in our, on our first tour of the States in 1975, when How, How Long was okay. this massive hit. He was in a band called Poco on the same label. And uh, we met and uh, he seemed like a nice guy. And then uh, he, out of the blue, I got a, a phone call from Don Felder from the Eagles, this was at, at a time before the Eagles got back together for whatever reason they weren't working. And uh, <laughs> Don and um, Timothy were a bit frustrated. They wanted to do something. So um, they kind of started to put a band together. It was talk of Joel Walsh being involved as well, but I think he went off and got himself sorted out instead. But we had a, there's another guy called Max Carl from a band called 38 Special. He was a, great guy not just a great singer funny as hell we had a so they they called me up and said did i fancy going over writing some songs recording some stuff with a view to having a, a band so i did that i was going over there and staying over with don we we we, we did some recordings we wrote some songs and what, we did a version of this song love will keep us alive but i was singing it but it looked quite exciting for a while there it looked like this thing might uh, happen but uh, as luck would have it, the Eagles Hell froze uh, over. Yep. decided to get back together. Uh, Hell froze <laughs> over and they decided to get back together. So, um, but they also, Timothy 
needed a song to sing on the album. And he said, what, well, how about if I sing, if I do Love Will Keep Us Alive? And we said, absolutely. Great. <laughs> yes, <Just> please. <laughs> well, it was a funny, it was, it was a kind of a double-edged sword because I was a, a, a little bit nervous because they kind of, uh, when it looked like it was going to happen, they were, on, they were um, suggesting that I would probably move to the States. And um, I had a young family at this time. I mean, I have four kids and um, I was a little bit unsure about how that would all work out. And so the decision was kind of made for me in a way, which so there was at one point, uh, on one hand, a little bit of disappointment and uh, on the other, a little bit of uh, relief <laughs> in a way. But um, the fact that they did the song was great because it's become a very well-known song and I, I still do it yeah. myself. So, And that wasn't the end of the, the association with the Eagles, was it? Because you also had uh, another track on on, on album, actual one of your tracks, didn't you, on, on their 2007 album? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, again, it was uh, Timothy called me and said that, you know, he he put forward a few songs they hadn't sort of got through and did I have anything? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't have anything, but I'll, I'll have a go. And I literally put the phone down and 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 wrote the chorus to I don't want to hear anymore. And um, I racked my brains actually trying to make that song work because I thought they're never going to do a song called I don't want to hear anymore because <laughs> I could just imagine the, you know, the DJs coming on and saying, well, I don't want to hear anymore either. It's rubbish. But um, so I sent him a demo of this song and he he quite liked it, but they were on the road. And uh, he asked me some several months later. I went. I saw him at the. Uh, they played in Twickenham at the stadium on their tour. And he said to me, um, well, "I still haven't got. Have you got any songs?" I said, "Well, I, what about that one I sent you?" He said, "Oh yeah, yeah. Send me that again." <laughs> so I sent it him again, and um, this went on for a, a long time. And I thought, well, then they're obviously not going to do it. And and the next time I spoke to him, I said, uh, "Well, yeah, you're not." Oh, you won't be doing that song then. So I'll, I'm going to do it. He said, "Oh no, 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 no. We're we're looking at it. It's, it's, it, you know, it's on. It's a contender." So anyway, when it eventually got on there, you know, it's, it's great because it's a real uh, compliment. You know, it's a real feather in your cap when because they don't do many outside songs. You know, so good stuff. Now let, let's get back to to today. Then you for the last one. 20 years or so you've been um, producing, releasing your own records. You're having control over it because of record contracts and stuff you've signed in the past. Um, and you've got a new album coming out, haven't you, in September. September 17th, one-on-one. Um, you've, you've leaked a couple of uh, singles for us to listen to. The first track, You're Not Alone. It's a lovely track, a lovely song. Um, another one that you've just released, uh, Good and Ready. It's a really upbeat number. It's, it's really in your face. And Thank I think you. the first things to say from listening to those is your voice. It's still... Incredible. It's still as good now as it was when we heard it in the 70s. I mean, there's not many rockers that can say that nowadays. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take the compliment. Um, yeah, voice is holding up pretty good. I mean, it has, I would say, has changed a bit. You know, I mean, I'm better, I think, now. I mean, when I do ha- did How Long, I that was more or less the first time I sung on a lead on a record, <laughs> you know. And so I'm totally self-taught musician and singer, and uh, you just hopefully you just get better. I mean, I I, I did turn seventy this year, yes. so um, 
you know, I'm sure there will come a point. But, um, I mean, then again, I look at my peers, you know, and I see Van Morrison and Eric and that. They're still singing away and uh, sounding good. So I, I, I try and take decent care of, of my, myself. You know, I don't smoke. I, I do like a glass of wine, I must admit, but um, no sort of hard liquor. And I've never really been a shouter, you know. I mean, um, I've always had a fairly sweet sounding voice, you know, but uh, so hopefully, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the, um, the, the new track. I mean, the majority of the album is up, is upbeat, actually. It, it, there's just, uh, You're Not Alone was a ballad and uh, kind of hit the spot at mainstream radio. I don't know why, because they kind of ignored my last album, but um, that went down pretty good. But I, as I say, the majority of the album, which I've recorded pretty much myself, yes, you know, playing playing more or less everything, because of there was no alternative really. But <laughs> uh, but it's written with the band in mind and doing gigs and stuff, so it's it's, it's pretty much up, upbeat. And you you do when you have kind of released an album almost every year, haven't you? I mean, you're very prolific when it comes to not far, yeah, off. very prolific when it comes to your own uh, solo stuff and things like that. You're still enjoying writing and creating as much now as you always did. I don't know what else to do, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, it keeps me. Uh, I mean, it's kept me sane in a way during lockdown. You know, because um, I, mm-hmm. I'm fortunate. I've got this little. Sp- I've got the space. It's nice environment now to work. It used to be a garage. It used to be pretty Spartan, but I dolled it up, you know, six, seven years ago. And it's, it's a nice place. Best money I spent. Cause it, as I say, this last year has been a godsend really to have a nice place to come and come and work. Yeah. I don't know what keeps me uh, trying to, uh, it, it's like, 20 years ago, I, I decided, look, I, I, I suddenly found I didn't have the rights to a lot of the stuff I'd done. I had no rights to it at all, even though I'd sent lead vocal and stuff and things. Uh, when I tried to put out a compilation album of my stuff, it was difficult, you know, uh, to get permission to do it. So um, I decided the penny kind of dropped and I thought, you know what, I need to have my own uh, catalogue of stuff. And that's what I've kind of been working on. I think the fact that I never sort of really, I've done okay. I mean, I've had uh, bits of success here and there, but I've never sort of felt that's it. I've done it. I've cracked it. So I just have to keep going until I drop. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully that isn't anytime soon indeed. Um, (laughs) Hopefully not, no. (laughs) Um, You you mentioned that the album is is fairly upbeat. You've written it with a band in mind. So is there any plans for concerts? I know it's very difficult, obviously, with with these lockdowns and all that sort of stuff that's going on and the government changing rules and stuff. But have you got any concerts in mind planned ahead? Yeah. Yes, we do. I mean, uh, we, we tried initially when it first hit because we were in, we had a whole year of touring lined up. Uh, all over the place and the Eric stuff as well, because I'm still touring with Eric. You know, we initially tried rescheduling stuff and then that didn't happen. In the end, we sort of said, so we looked at 2022, which suddenly doesn't look too far off now at the (laughs) time. But we we put in our normal tour, which is, you know, we do something like 30 shows in theatres in the UK. So that's in place for 2022. Um, prior to that, 
we've got a couple of little outdoor festivals, one in July, a couple in August. Um, September, all being well, I will be on tour with Eric Clapton in America, just as part of his band. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, uh, playing organ, basically. And then uh, in October, we have some of the dates we, we rescheduled, UK, three, I think. And then we go to Holland or Netherlands and uh, Belgium. Yeah, so it'll come round quicker now we can we can see it happening good stuff keep him busy <laughs> keep him busy well it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you paul we look forward to hearing the album when it comes out and september 17th one-on-one and um i'm guessing people can pre-order that now can they yeah yeah it's it it's uh available to pre-order i mean originally it was supposed to come out in june and people had pre-ordered it then but um i actually got a little bit ill in uh March and April I had shingles, which was like rubbish. So I lost some time there. I missed the boat with the scheduling of, you know, release dates and all this and that and the other. So uh, it was decided we, we put it off to September. So apologies to anybody who might be watching this who pre-ordered it back then. I can assure you it's, gonna, it's coming out and it, it, I think you'll like it. But um, so, yes, yeah, September. Good stuff. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and we, we, we wish you all the luck for the future. Thank you. There you go, the brilliant Paul Carrack there. Check out his new singles and pre-order his new album now. It's available for release in September. Looking forward to that. Now, if this is the first time you've listened to Vintage Rock Pod, then please do go back and check out some of the other big interviews from throughout the series. Some seriously big-name guests have been interviewed along the way, including eight Hall of Fame inductees big names each and every one of them all with incredible stories to tell now even if you haven't heard maybe of some of the guests or you weren't a big fan of their music or maybe genre as well because we do cover everything from mods to punks to prog to heavy rock their stories will certainly hook you in and they all involve some suitably big names on each episode as well so please do go back and check them all out now we're at the point of the show where i give you my song recommendations five favorite songs from the band of the guest on the show and as you heard there's plenty of bands i could have chosen for paul carrick but i'm gonna go with mike and the mechanics so here's my five favorite songs from mike and the mechanics according to vintage rock pod at five is a track from their self-titled debut album from 1985 it went top five on the u.s billboard hot 100 and is an upbeat number with a sing-along chorus from paul young and number five is All I Need Is A Miracle. Number four is a track from their 1995 album Beggar On A Beach Of Gold. It wasn't a big hit single in the UK or US like some of their others, but charted well on mainland Europe. It's got a driving beat about it, and Mike Rutherford said it's a tale of the sadness and frustrations of married life. And number four is Another Cup Of Coffee. My number three is their big number one single in the US from the album of the same name. It went huge in 1989 and features a big choir too. It's a heartfelt message about a son and his father who passed away. I wish I would have told him in the living years. And number three is The Living Years. And number two is a song from their 1991 album, again of the same name. It's a rousing number driven on by an electric guitar and keyboard with a chantable sing-along set of lyrics. And number two is word of mouth. And at number one was the band's first single released in 1985. It brought the band to the world's attention, was used on the movie Dangerous Ground, and is still a great song. The number one Mike and the Mechanics song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is the classic Silent Running. 
So there you go, my favourite five songs from Mike and the Mechanics. As ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree or disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. Or, alternatively, you can message me on the social media stuff as well. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Give us a like or a follow on there as well. It's all much appreciated. You can also sign up to become a VRP VIP too and uh, receive a newsletter that will land in your inbox at the very most once a week. But I'll be honest with you, I've been very busy lately, so it's kind of a fortnightly thing at the moment. But it's packed full of extra bits and bobs from the world of Vintage Rock Pod. So just go to my website, VintageRockPod.com and sign up using the form on the front page there. I promise your information will not be sold or passed on to anyone else. I'm not going to spam you. You are very much safe. It's just all classic rock stuff. Well, there you go that's it for this week's main show then until the next episode remember if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock just tell them my music is better than yours take care it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.